This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 180th edition of the program. Today is Friday, February 15th, and before we start the show, I need to take a moment to thank all of our newest Patreon and PayPal contributors, all of which either signed up just this last week to support us or increased their monthly pledge. And that includes Cheryl Tyler, Henry Utset, James Aspinwall, Jared A. DeCeef, Latasha Strickland, Rodrigo D., Sean Matson, Stefano Kamali, Tamanisha John, and Yogesh Gadge. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to support the show, you can visit humanistreport.com support or you can check out patreon.com forward slash humanist report so on today's jam-packed episode first we'll talk about how the manufactured controversy regarding ilhan omar is ridiculous we'll talk about calls for her to resign as well as a powerful defense of her from katie halper we'll also talk about howard schultz's cnn town hall and donald trump's plan to allow saudi arabia to develop nuclear weapons his hot take on amy klobuchar's campaign launch with respect to climate change and a new warning from scientists about diminishing insect populations and how that spells disaster for the planet we'll also talk about tulsi gabbard and why she's the only 2020 candidate thus far with an anti-war platform rokana's defense of net neutrality against fake republican friends and in a weekly dose of stupidity segment we'll look at a republican lawmaker who casually joked about killing his kids if they grow up to be gay so all of these topics and more will be discussed in today's show i hope you guys enjoy the program just a couple of months ago, everyone within the establishment, namely the Democratic Party establishment, was all celebrating the historic success of Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar. Their electoral victories really was historic, and it was remarkable because they are the first Muslim women elected to Congress. And that matters because descriptive representation matters. Having the voice of Muslim women included in the policymaking process is important because oftentimes they're excluded, not just socially, but politically. And giving them political power, allowing them to have a say, it really does matter for substantive reasons. But now that they're actually using their voices, well, since they're saying things that a lot of people don't like, now they're being told to shut up. Ironically, by the same people who were celebrating their victories just a couple of months ago. And they are receiving, I think, an unprecedented level of criticism from their own colleagues in Congress. And all of this really reached a fever pitch when Ilhan Omar broke a cardinal rule and pointed out all of the money that the pro-Israel lobby, primarily APEC, spends in buying off politicians in both political parties. Now, she responded to a tweet from Glenn Greenwald where he says GOP leader Kevin McCarthy threatens punishment for Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib over their criticisms of Israel. It's stunning how much time U.S. political leaders spend defending a foreign nation, even if it means attacking free speech rights of Americans. Now, Ilhan then responded saying, it's all about the Benjamins, baby. This then prompted criticism from a columnist at 
forward, who responded to Ilhan saying, would love to know who Ilhan Omar thinks is paying American politicians to be pro-Israel, though I think I can guess. Bad form, Congresswoman. That's the second anti-Semitic trope you've tweeted. Ilhan then responded by saying, APAC. Now, what she's saying is factually correct. Now, understand that in spite of them trying to conflate this with anti-Semitism, that's not what it is. APAC is lobbying on behalf of the Israeli government. Nobody's saying that we're against advocacy for Jewish groups, groups that defend human rights of Jewish people, Jewish Americans, and Jewish individuals around the world. Nobody's saying that that's unacceptable. But what we are saying is that the reason why the United States takes this vehement pro-Israel stand and the reason why they literally are choosing to look away while Israel carries out this genocidal apartheid state against Palestinians is because there are lobbying groups in this country that are paying politicians to keep their mouths shut, just as there are NRA lobbyists trying to influence Republicans to not do any type of gun legislation reform, just as there are oil and gas companies trying to influence politicians to not do anything about climate change. Well, there are pro-Israel lobbying groups, not to be confused with pro-Jewish people lobbying groups, who are trying to get our politicians in America to do the bidding of a foreign government. And that's all that Ilhan Omar is pointing out. But nonetheless, this basically catalyzed universal condemnation, not just from Republicans, not just from the media, but from her own party. Not only did it become a gigantic story in the media and was trending on Twitter, but you had Republican House Whip Steve Scalise call for her to be removed from her appointment to the Foreign Affairs Committee. You had right-wing media personalities like Ben Shapiro calling on her to resign and comparing her remarks to Steve King's white supremacy, believe it or not. Nancy Pelosi demanded an apology from her. Chuck Schumer called her comments anti-Semitic, offensive, and irresponsible. And basically, everyone dogpiled on her. Any normal human being, just from a psychological level, would probably feel inclined to just cave. Because, I mean, that's, that's a lot of pressure to face. When all eyes are on you, when you're being smeared like this, I mean, I could see just from a human standpoint why you would want to say whatever you can to divert criticism away from you. So she said this, anti-Semitism is real and I am grateful for Jewish allies and colleagues who are educating me on the painful history of anti-Semitic tropes. My intention is never to offend my constituents or Jewish Americans as a whole. We have to always be willing to step back and think through criticism, just as I expect people to hear me when others attack me from my identity. This is why I unequivocally apologize. At the same time, I reaffirm the problematic role of lobbyists in our politics. Whether it be APAC, the NRA, or the fossil fuel industry, it's gone on too long and we must be willing to address it. Now, I feel conflicted about this statement because on one hand, she absolutely should not have apologized. But again, just from a psychological standpoint, it's difficult to face that level of criticism, especially if you're not really used to the spotlight. But also, she is standing strong. She is reiterating her original point that it's not anti-Semitic to point out the fact that pro-Israel, 
pro-Israeli government lobbying groups are buying off American politicians. Look, there's a fundamental difference between the anti-Semitic conspiracy theory about how Jewish people supposedly control all of the levers of power and everything in society. There's a difference between that and the accurate claim that APEC, like other interest groups, have a substantial amount of influence on American politicians because we live in a system where our campaign finance laws are broken. But what they're trying to do here in criticizing her and calling what she did anti-Semitic is they're stripping away the context from what she said in order to pretend as if she's not talking about lobbying and money and politics, when in actuality APAC does spend millions of dollars lobbying on behalf of the Israeli government every single year, and furthermore the biggest donor in the country, Sheldon Adelson, is trying to throw his weight around in order to push what Mint Press News calls an Israel first agenda agenda in America. Now understand that these are not forces that are lobbying on behalf of the Jewish people. These are influential forces that are lobbying on behalf of Israel's right-wing government who's buying influence in an effort to get America to turn a blind eye to its genocidal apartheid state. And we need to be savvy here and recognize that they have a vested interest in falsely conflating any and all criticism of its government with anti-Semitism because that faux outrage is an easy way to dissuade people from speaking out on behalf of Palestinians. And we need to recognize that if you're speaking out on behalf of Palestinians, you are on the right side of history. You are on the right side of history. Because it's Palestinians who are being oppressed by the Israeli government. Not only is Israel building more and more settlements on Palestinian land, but Israeli citizens who live in Israel are treated as if they are second-class citizens. And it's actually a stretch to say that they're treated as second-class citizens because they're treated worse than that. Gaza is the biggest open-air prison in the world. They can't leave or enter without Israel's say. So what we are seeing here is rampant Islamophobia. And to say that any criticism of said Islamophobia and genocide and apartheid is anti-Semitic? Well, no, you're just pretending to be outraged because you want to hide the real injustice here, and that is Islamophobia. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the only other two Muslims ever elected to Congress, Rashida Tlaib and Keith Ellison, were also accused of anti-Semitism. So all of this righteous indignation that we're hearing is nothing more than a thinly veiled attempt to hide their own Islamophobia. They don't like that they're actually the ones who are taking a bigoted stance here. So they're trying to project and say, no, you're actually the one who are, who's being insensitive. You're the one who's a bigot. No, in actuality, if you're not speaking out on behalf of Palestinians as the Israel government carries out a genocide and apartheid state against them, you are the one who's in the wrong. And pointing that out, pointing out how the pro-Israel lobby, such as APAC, use their influence to lobby politicians to turn a blind eye to all of Israel's human rights violations and the atrocities that they commit. The real issue is Islamophobia. The real issue is anti-Palestinian bias. And again, you would think that Democrats who were historically on the right side of many issues would see this, but the money is too good to them. People like Nancy Pelosi pretend to be so excited about Muslim women of color getting elected to Congress because we need their voices included in the conversation, but that is until they say something you don't like. Then you tell them to shut up. Democratic Party leadership tells them to shut up.
So understand that this is disgusting. It's not real outrage. It's fake outrage with people who have a pro-Israel government agenda and they're just pretending to care about the plight of Jewish people because they're hiding behind their own anti-Palestinian bias. This is the weaponization of identity politics to be used against the left who are rightfully calling out human rights abuses and violations. And it's absolutely disgusting. And anyone who doesn't stand up for Ilhan Omar in this situation in Congress, they're really showing their true colors because she did nothing wrong. She's pointing out a fact. But that's exactly what the Israeli government wants. They want you to think that any and all criticism is anti-Semitic. Well, you can actually be nuanced and separate your criticisms of the Israeli government from real disgusting anti-Semitic tropes. The manufactured scandal over Ilhan Omar's supposedly anti-Semitic comments on Twitter is a perfect example as to how the Republican Party is able to continuously play Democrats like a fiddle and why the left always loses because they don't actually care about anti-Semitism. This is nothing more than a game to them. They just want to beat the left and by playing their game, you lose. Just by participating, you automatically lose because you're playing their game. And the people who claim to care the most about anti-Semitism, like Republican Party leadership, namely Kevin McCarthy, who promised to take action against Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar for their support of BDS, he boldly declared that anti-Semitic tropes have no place in the halls of Congress, but yet he conveniently ignores the tweet he put out just a couple of months ago where he named Jewish billionaires and said they shouldn't be allowed to, quote, buy the November 6th election. And nobody in either party really said anything about this. There was no outrage. Republicans like Ted Cruz and Donald Trump didn't denounce Kevin McCarthy for what he said here because, let's call it what it is, these are bad faith actors who don't actually care about anti-Semitism. The Republican Party is a racist, far-right, extremist party who's just using this as an opportunity to have you all pounce on a black Muslim woman for saying something that's actually true and for speaking out on behalf of those who don't have a voice, Palestinians. But regardless, Democratic Party politicians, they're just not politically savvy enough to recognize that this is nothing more than a political ploy by bad faith actors to get them to attack their own party and eat their own. And Democrats are more than willing to oblige and also attack Ilhan Omar because they would never do anything that would offend their donors because to them, they also don't really care about anti-Semitism. Do they care more than Republicans? Sure. But the Democratic Party, they're always going to be about looking out for moneyed interests. So they're never going to take a stand that could even be deemed remotely offensive, be it them supporting Medicare for all, because Nancy Pelosi's top eight assured health executives that we'd never have Medicare for all. Or in this situation, they're also going to take the inoffensive stand and say, you know what, we also condemn Ilhan Omar because we don't want to jeopardize our relationship with our donor. And that donor is APAC. So the reason why they felt compelled to speak out against Ilhan Omar while doing so disgustingly under the guise of 
speaking out against anti-Semitism, is all about donors. But understand this, criticisms of APAC and money in politics, these are not tantamount to criticisms of the Jewish people, nor are they anti-Semitic and APAC is not a synonym for Jew. In fact, the pro-Israel lobby isn't comprised exclusively of Jewish people. As David Cleon explains, the collective pro-Israel lobby is comprised of evangelicals, defense contractors, Saudis, Emiratis, and they've all formed an influential political alliance to lobby on behalf of their interests against Iran and for the military-industrial complex. And if you think Ilhan Omar is anti-Semitic for pointing out APAC's influence, then you also have to call pro-Israel lobbyists anti-Semitic because they actually bragged about this exact same thing, the level of influence they have over Washington, D.C. So it's puzzling to me that supposedly politically astute people in Washington, D.C. can't comprehend the fact that this is nothing more than a coordinated effort to attack a progressive woman of color, also that way they can appease their donors. These are bad faith actors that don't actually care about anti-Semitism. APAC is not lobbying to advance the rights of the Jewish community. This is about protecting Israel's right-wing government as they carry out a genocide and apartheid against Palestinians. And if you truly believe that APAC is an organization that is interested in civil rights and civil liberties for Jewish people, then you have to explain why the average Jewish American probably couldn't even afford the cheapest membership option to APAC in the event they wanted to join, which starts at $1,800, and it's because this isn't an organization that's driven by advocacy for the Jewish people. They're a collection of rich racists who want lawmakers to turn a blind eye to Israel's genocidal and apartheid regime. It's really as simple as that. And the fact that they brag about getting you access to members of Congress as part of their membership demonstrates how powerful their influence actually is. But again, they're not necessarily concerned with the plight of the Jewish people. This is about foreign policy influence. It's about Israel's geopolitical hegemony in the Middle East, and it behooves them to equate criticism of their politics as anti-Semitism, because that's what helps them to further their foreign policy agenda. But regardless of what I thought was obvious, Democrats played right into the right's hand, and they now paved the way for Donald Trump to attack Ilhan Omar. And now, he just boldly declared that she should either step down from serving on the Foreign Affairs Committee or resign from Congress as a whole. One other thing I might want to say is that anti-Semitism has no place in the United States Congress. And Congressman Omar is terrible, what she said. And I think she should either resign from Congress or she should certainly resign from the House Foreign Affairs Committee. What she said is so deep-seated in her heart that her lame apology, and that's what it was, it was lame, and she didn't mean a word of it, uh, was just not appropriate. I think she should resign from Congress, frankly. But at a minimum, she shouldn't be on committees, or certainly that committee. And that right there is exactly why the Democratic Party needs to get it through their heads that they will never win by playing the Republican Party's game, by jumping on this bandwagon, this manufactured controversy created by bad faith acting Republicans, they just paved the way for these attacks on Ilhan Omar. They paved the way and emboldened the right and legitimized these types of attacks on her.
And now there are calls for her to resign by the president. So what we're seeing as a result of the Democratic Party's unwillingness to fight in light of what is always ruthlessness from Republicans, now Donald Trump is going to lecture all of us on sensitivity and anti-Semitism. The same individual who refused to condemn neo-Nazis in Charlottesville, saying there were fine people on both sides, who bragged about sexually assaulting women, who called for a ban on Muslims entering and exiting the country, who called Mexicans rapists, who banned transgender troops from serving in the military, who has a long history of racism, who's essentially spoken in a bigoted manner about every single marginalized community in existence, is now lecturing us on anti-Semitism. Do you honestly think, ask yourself this, that Donald Trump cares at all about anti-Semitism? No, because again, these are bad faith actors that couldn't care less about the plight of Jewish people. Real progressives care about the Jewish people and the Jewish community. But real progressives also care about Palestinians and their struggle, and we are savvy enough to disaggregate criticisms and anti-Semitism and anti-Semitic tropes, and criticisms of Israel's right-wing government, led by Benjamin Netanyahu, who is a far-right extremist, who is trying to get you to turn a blind eye as he carries out a genocide and apartheid. So, this is just, it's so disgusting. This event has undoubtedly emboldened the right, because now we're supposed to believe that Donald Trump, of all people, cares about anti-Semitism. I mean, how can you not see that they are hiding behind their racism and anti-Palestinian agenda? These Republicans don't care about Jewish people. They just want to maintain the status quo, where Israel is allowed to oppress Palestinians with impunity, and anyone who calls out this injustice is demonized, and they're the ones who are considered the bad guy. Again, Republicans don't care about justice and equality. All they care about is winning, beating Democrats, beating the left, beating back calls for justice and equality, which is what Ilhan Omar was pointing to and calling out the influence of AIPAC in making it difficult for us to achieve, to achieve peace between Israel and Palestine, to advocate for Palestinian human rights. So by playing their game, by not seeing bad faith actors for what they are, you are allowing Republicans to win. And I'm disappointed that the left isn't more astute and savvy to see what this is in actuality. And I'm also disappointed in progressive leaders like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who came out with a response that was incredibly disappointing who didn't acknowledge that there are bad faith actors who are trying to exploit this event so they can get the left to pounce on Ilhan Omar, to eat their own. And really, when it comes to Bernie Sanders, I think his silence on this is deafening. Imagine how powerful it would be to see a Jewish American progressive leader come out and say, I support BDS full stop. I'm against the genocide and apartheid state of Israel and what they're doing. Their ethno state is unacceptable and either they allow for a return to the 1967 borders or they do a one state solution and grant full equality to Palestinians. But understand here, it's difficult for them to act. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, I can see why she probably was dissuaded from speaking out on Ilhan Omar's behalf because she would have been 
just as easily attacked um, if she spoke out on her behalf. So I, I get it, right? There's already talks that New York Democrats might just eliminate her district altogether in 2020. So I can see why there's fear there. But for Bernie Sanders, really, I think that his silence here, it hurts the most because we expect more from Bernie Sanders. We expect more from progressive leaders who know that these are nothing more than bad faith arguments from bad faith actors. But it's disappointing. Just all around, I'm disappointed. And, you know, I give Ilhan Omar credit for being courageous enough to speak out about this in the first place. But if the left isn't going to acknowledge that the Republican Party don't care about anti-Semitism and human rights, and they're just playing a game, and this is nothing more than a game to them, then we will never win. I mean, think about this. Dave Rubin, a conservative political pundit, called Ilhan Omar a Jew hater, and then a day later, what did he do? He talked about how the left sees bigotry everywhere except where it actually is, meaning the right is allowed to call out bigotry, but when the left does it, they're just being SJWs. I mean, the hypocrisy is an embedded feature in American conservatism, the fact that the left doesn't see this, the fact that Democratic Party leaders don't see this, it shows that they're not suited for that position because they're not advocates for the left and an actual progressive agenda. They're just playing the Republican Party's game, and unfortunately, it's because they're always going to do what their donors want them to do. This really is no different. It's just all around. I feel so disappointed, and I feel bad for Ilhan Omar here. After the manufactured controversy regarding Ilhan Omar's so-called anti-Semitic tweet reached a fever pitch once the president called on her to resign, she decided to do something that Democrats don't often do. She decided to take a stand and actually fight back against these illegitimate calls from bad faith actors to resign. And she said this to Donald Trump, quote, You have trafficked and hate your whole life against Jews, Muslims, indigenous, immigrants, black people, and more. I learned from people impacted by my words. When will you? And really, you know, kudos to her for actually fighting back, because typically when Democrats are faced with even the smallest semblance of criticism from the right, they melt down. They don't know how to respond. But what she's doing here is actually unique in fighting back. Other Democrats should probably take note. And really, she should fight back. She's right to fight back because Donald Trump is suddenly claiming to care about anti-Semitism when, in 2017, when neo-Nazis marched in Charlottesville, when they chanted, Jews will not replace us, when they chanted, blood and soil, he refused to condemn all of those people. He said there were very fine people on both sides. I mean, do you honestly think that he cares about anti-Semitism or for Donald Trump? Is this just about him exploiting this opportunity to attack a Muslim woman of color who's a political opponent? I mean, if you really think that he genuinely cares about anti-Semitism, then I've got a bridge to sell you. But what I probably find the most interesting about this entire debacle is that it seems like the most notoriously bigoted people on the right are also jumping at this opportunity to attack Ilhan Omar, including Laura Ingram of Fox News, who, I mean, if you know anything about Laura Ingram, then your initial reaction should be, have a seat, Laura. You're not the best person to educate all of us on sensitivity and anti-Semitism. Because let me remind you, this is someone who has previously said, immigrants are destroying the America we love. She warned us of, quote, demographic changes and how the America as we know it no longer exists. She's concocted conspiracy theories about how Democrats support illegal immigration, specifically so undocumented immigrants can vote illegally for Democrats. I mean, this is someone who's not just racist and xenophobic, but I think most 
most individuals who are rational would see that she is a generally shitty person. But nonetheless, she's going to convince you and all of us now, or try to at least, that she cares about anti-Semitism and she's going to attack Ilhan Omar. But in this segment where she talks about Ilhan Omar, she actually brought on fellow progressive podcast host Katie Halper, who's also an American Jewish progressive, and she's going to actually defend Ilhan Omar here in a really powerful segment. But throughout the course of this segment, you see what Katie Halper is saying, and it's wonderful, but I can't help but be simultaneously angry because the response that Laura Ingram has to everything Katie Halper says is just incredibly condescending, and it got under my skin. Take a look. Katie, you say that uh, Omar's comments are both not anti-Semitic, and you you didn't have a problem, I imagine, with the first comments. No, I mean, I have a problem the apology with her fine. as an anti-Semite. She said something, this is how anti-Semitic it was, apparently. She said something that... Thomas Friedman, major supporter of Israel, has said, Thomas Friedman said at the New York Times that an applause that Bibi Netanyahu received was paid for by the Israel lobby. An Israel lobby, any lobby is a lobby. A lobby lobbies uses money to influence politics and politicians. That's what APAC does. APAC wants you to know that. APAC knows that. Everyone who uh, donates to APAC knows that. This is literally stating a fact. There's nothing anti-Semitic in there. What is anti-Semitic, though, if you want to talk about anti-Semitic tropes and playing into those, is what Kevin McCarthy, who, along with Donald Trump, is going after um, Ilhan um, Omar, and what he said in a tweet that he deleted was that, um, uh, that Steyer and Bloomberg and Soros were buying the election. Now, that is an anti-Semitic trope that he definitely played okay, into. He deleted the tweet, okay, but he never so, apologized. So billionaires, Trump, billionaires can't buy an election well, then. Naming, I get billionaires three, who are liberal. That's cool. But if you're a conservative, you're spending too much money. Wait, All right, Katie. Also, um, Trump, Katie, no, no, really Katie quickly, take a Trump breath. Take a breath. Let it out. It's okay. Take a breath, Katie. No one can understand if you talk over Call me, sweetie. Crazy. I get annoyed by right. hypocrisy and Islamophobia. Well, I get annoyed up. when people talk over it because our viewers can't actually hear what we're saying. So I want them to hear you, okay. and then I want them to hear everybody. Okay, Matt didn't interrupt you, so try to try to just take a take a breath. All right, this is the Washington uh, Jerusalem Post today. Don't roll your eyes. My I'm daughter not. does that, and it gets really annoying. That last part had me fuming, because how dare you? Treat your guests like that. Shouldn't you as a host treat your guests with respect? I mean, you brought on Katie Halpert to get her unique perspective as a Jewish American progressive and you treat her as if she's a fucking child. Who are you, Laura Ingram? Who are you to talk down to her as if you're better than Katie Halpert? You're not better than Katie Halpert. But the reason why Laura Ingram was treating Katie Helper that bad is because she was saying things that Laura Ingram didn't agree with. So the response was hostility. The response was to talk down to her in order to try to diminish her credibility. But what Katie Helper did in that clip was she revealed that they are incredibly hypocritical because she pointed to Kevin McCarthy invoking anti-Semitic tropes. He name-dropped three different Jewish billionaires, Tom Steyer, Bloomberg, Soros, and he said that they are trying to, quote, buy the election. Now, what was Laura Ingram's response? Quote, so billionaires can't buy elections now? She's so stupid. Objectively speaking, Laura Ingram doesn't have the intellectual capacity to host a show because you can't even grasp a simple point that Katie Halper was making. The point was that, no, it's not acceptable for billionaires 
to buy elections. The left is actually speaking out against that more so than the right, more so than you, Laura Ingram. But the point is, why is what Kevin McCarthy did, why is that not anti-Semitic, but why is what Ilhan Omar did anti-Semitic? Why is that a trope, but Kevin McCarthy's statement isn't a trope? She's pointing to the hypocrisy, but it flew right over Laura Ingram's head. And if it didn't, if she actually did grasp why this double standard is problematic, then, you know, it explains why she got angry. So there's another clip here that I want to show you where it was my favorite part because in this clip, Katie Halper just unleashes and Laura Ingram and the other guests couldn't keep up, so they just try to shut down the debate. But Katie Halper talks right past them, and even if they may not have grasped her point, by and large, it's easy to see that she got the better of this exchange, and I hope that what she said resonates with viewers. They're a democracy, an important part of the world. They're a strategic ally to the United States. We don't have to agree with absolutely every decision their government makes, but it is wrong to attack them as a people. Well, no one attacked them as a people, That's, luckily. I We're just saw that tweet. AIPAC. I'm a Jew. I'm a person. No one attacked me because I don't support APAC. Millions of Jews this, don't support APAC, and that's why there are all these but alternatives. But this is the problem. Because let, let Jews me, like me are really tired of having APAC, which is a very small but very powerful elite minority representation of Jews. It's very tiresome to have them speak, claim to speak for all Jews and conflate Jewish this, identity with unquestioning support of Israel, which this is an is anti-Semitic in itself. This, let me just say that's this, Lord. This is the, yeah. this is the big Trump, dynamic. It nice if Donald Trump this, had actually this, condemned the people in Charlottesville. This, and you, this is Matt, the dynamic you work in this communication, right? If I could please just oh answer it. This is the dynamic... Let's stay, let's, let's okay. stay. Okay, guys, 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 I gotta tell you. Guys, 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 stop. Jews stop. Statement. So again, what she did there was pointed to specific instances where Donald Trump defended anti-Semitism. He refused to condemn neo-Nazis who marched in Charlottesville. So what Katie Halper is doing is she's juxtaposing what is seemingly two different realities. One, Donald Trump defending neo-Nazis and refusing to condemn them, and him also condemning Ilhan Omar for supposedly anti-Semitic remarks. She's saying these are contradictory things. Either he's against anti-Semitism or he's not. But what she's pointing out here is, first of all, everyone who is supposedly outraged by this, they're saying, one, that Kevin McCarthy, with his tweet, that wasn't an anti-Semitic trope, and also, it wasn't anti-Semitic for Donald Trump to not unequivocally condemn the neo-Nazis who marched in Charlottesville. But yet, What Ilhan Omar did in pointing out the influence that a lobbying organization has on Washington, D.C., that was somehow anti-Semitic, and you want us to take you seriously and believe you when you say that what she did is anti-Semitic when Donald Trump not condemning neo-Nazis, when Kevin McCarthy invoking anti-Semitic tropes, that's not anti-Semitic to you? She's pointing out this double standard that is evident. It shows that they are bad faith actors and they're not consistent. They just care about beating their political opponents. And they're using this as an opportunity to cultivate outrage among the left so that way they can get the left to attack Ilhan Omar, to attack one of their own. And it's working perfectly because that's exactly what happened. We had Democratic Party leadership condemn Ilhan Omar. We had basically everyone either condemn her in the Democratic Party, or just not really come to her defense. 
and that's exactly what they wanted. So what Katie Halper is demonstrating here is that this is all just much ado about nothing. It's bullshit. It's manufactured outrage. It's selective outrage. It's quintessential selective outrage. This is a game to them. They don't care about anti-Semitism because if they did, Donald Trump would have condemned the neo-Nazis and Kevin McCarthy wouldn't have invoked an anti-Semitic trope. But they don't care. They're more than willing to call out anti-Semitism when it happens on the left, supposedly, but when it happens on the right, they plug their ears and cover their eyes. So I think I speak for a lot of people when I say that the longer I follow politics, the more cynical I become, because it just seems like human beings, we just want to wipe ourselves out, because if we don't do it inadvertently through catastrophic climate change, then we're bound to do it directly through nuclear annihilation. Because I think that, you know, just at a basic level, we can all agree that the proliferation of nuclear weapons is bad, right? We can all agree. So if we agree that they're bad, then we can make the next logical jump and also assert that maybe countries shouldn't have them. Maybe no country should have them, including the United States. Maybe we should all just come together, you know, with a vested interest in preserving humanity and say, let's all collectively get rid of our nuclear stockpiles at the same time. But we're not doing that. And if you care about the proliferation of nuclear weapons and the threat that that poses to humanity, then you should be especially vigilant about what Donald Trump is doing. Because what did he do when he became president? He got rid of the Iran nuclear deal. What did that do? Well, it actually made it easier, contrary to popular belief, for Iran to get a nuclear weapon. Because if you are saying you're not going to be part of an international agreement that allows for the International Atomic Energy Agency to regularly inspect them and make sure that they are complying with the deal and not building a nuclear weapon, then you're stupid. You're just making it easier for them to get a nuclear weapon. And furthermore, just a couple of weeks ago, we learned that he was pulling out of a landmark Cold War era treaty with Russia, which will possibly pave the way for even more nuclear weapons. And now he's doing something that has got to be the dumbest thing he's done yet. And as Jonathan Swan, Dave Lawler, and Elena Treen of Axios reports, President Trump is set to meet this afternoon with U.S. energy industry leaders to discuss issues including the possibility of providing Saudi Arabia with a path to nuclear power. The New York Times noted last November that privately, administration officials argue that if the United States does not sell the nuclear equipment to Saudi Arabia, someone else will. Maybe Russia, China, or South Korea. A deal to help Saudi Arabia acquire nuclear energy would not require Senate approval per ProPublica, but Congress could block the deal with a joint resolution opposing it. Senior Democrats have previously expressed concerns. Let me repeat that. Donald Trump is meeting with industry leaders to discuss issues including the possibility of providing Saudi Arabia with a path to nuclear power. The logic is just baffling. Well, you see, you know, this is more of an economic opportunity because if we don't sell them what they need to become a nuclear power, then it's going to be Russia or South Korea that's going to do it. I'm not going to use our power and international hegemony to put pressure on those countries to stop them from selling the equipment needed to make Saudi Arabia a nuclear power. We're just going to beat them to it. 
so we can get that money. So our defense contractors and energy leaders can make money. I mean, has the world lost its mind? You want Saudi Arabia? An extreme Wahhabist regime to be able to get closer to getting nuclear weapons? That isn't problematic, but Iran who has explicitly stated they don't want nuclear weapons, them getting it is somehow worse. It's not just a deterrent for them. But Saudi Arabia, you know, it's inevitable, so we might as well make money off of it. I mean, people, capitalism is going to kill us all. This is what's happening. He's using an economic, i.e. capitalistic justification for allowing Saudi Arabia to get the equipment needed to become a nuclear power. Now, developing nuclear just for an energy source, that's one thing, right? If they want a renewable source that's clean, sure. But what we're talking about here is nuclear power in the sense of it being military power, in the sense that they would have nuclear weapons. Yeah, I don't feel uh, comfortable about that. I don't know about you, but I don't. And as uh, Ken Klippenstein points out, this should kind of be a bigger story because it absolutely should be a bigger story i mean this is so stupid why aren't we talking about denuclearization why aren't people pushing more self for us to get rid of our nuclear stockpiles that should be the ultimate goal not let more countries develop nuclear weapons now does this mean that you become more hawkish well no of course not but certainly at a minimum let's just not encourage other countries, especially the crazy ones from getting nuclear weapons. But I mean, again, it, it just feels like humans, they put profit over people and they don't even care that it could lead to the end of our species. We are the dumbest species. We have to be the dumbest species in the entire universe. <laughs> I mean, what other species goes against their own self-interest and desire to survive more so than us. I mean, we kill each other regularly. There's a war going on every single day somewhere around the country. And it's all because of something that we created, this concept called money. Well, there's something that's more import important than money, and it's called survival. But apparently, um, our leaders don't care about survival. They care about their survival, but not the survival of, you know, the aggregate species. And uh, they put profits over people. I mean, what a stupid world that we live in. Um, Donald Trump is a maniac, and needless to say, we should do everything in our power to defeat him in 2020. Over the weekend, Amy Klobuchar announced that she is running for president in 2020. And really, I think that the general response from the left was a collective meh. Because I personally, I don't know anyone who actually knows who Amy Klobuchar is, and for the individuals that I know who know who she is, they just don't care. We all just don't care. She's just kind of a milquetoast, boring, neoliberal centrist, and she's not putting forward an agenda that's exciting to anyone. Now, of course, she's taking some cues from the progressive left and refusing to take corporate PAC money, which is good, but I mean, by and large, she's not an exciting candidate. She is a centrist, she's against Medicare for all, and really the only people who are truly excited is her colleagues in the Senate who are Republicans. So nobody really cares about Amy Klobuchar, but Donald Trump in 
proving yet again that he really is his own worst enemy. He tweeted about her by saying this. Well, it happened again. Amy Klobuchar announced that she's running for president, talking proudly of fighting global warming while standing in a virtual blizzard of snow, ice, and freezing temperatures. Bad timing. By the end of her speech, she looked like a snowman. Woman. That was just so idiotic. He's telling on himself because what he's trying to do is he he's thinking that he's getting her. You talk about global warming, but it's snowing. <laughs> Aren't I clever? No, dummy. There's a difference between weather and climate. A real fundamental difference. Weather is what's happening now. Climate is weather patterns over an extended period of time. We're talking decades. And furthermore, when scientists warned us about all of the consequences that would come to fruition as a result of climate change, one of the consequences they warned us about was extreme weather patterns on both sides of the spectrum, extreme hots and extreme colds. And we're seeing that right now. So regardless if you want to believe it or not, Donald Trump, global warming is a thing. And thinking that you're owning her and getting her by basically trying to make it seem as if global warming is a joke because it's snowing, it's equally as stupid as Jim Inhofe trying to disprove climate change by bringing a snowball to the floor of Congress. It's just moronic. But he doesn't see that as moronic. He thinks that he's being clever and he's getting her. But what you just did was you put liberals who were apathetic about Amy Klobuchar like myself in this position to where we have to not only defend her, but point out your stupidity and how you face planted. So what you just did, Trump, you moron, is you handed Amy Klobuchar a gigantic gift because this puts her in really the perfect position, the ideal situation for a candidate who may ultimately be your opponent. You attack her right out of the gate, lending credence to the claim that maybe you're scared and that she's a legitimate candidate, and you open the door to basically an ass-whooping because what you said was so stupid. And what Amy Klobuchar, a milquetoast, boring neoliberal centrist, did in response was give Donald Trump the ass-whooping that he deserved. So she responded saying, Science is on my side, Donald Trump. Looking forward to debating you about climate change and many other issues. And I wonder how your hair would fare in a blizzard. <laughs> How's it taste, motherfucker? Look, I'm, I'm really just ambivalent when it comes to Amy Klobuchar, but you've got to give her credit where it's due. That line about his hair. <laughs> My hat goes off. See, this is why Donald Trump is such a moron. He just gave her this gift because usually what these Democratic Party candidates do, like Elizabeth Warren, is they have to respond to every single attack that Donald Trump does. And typically they just face plant because it's difficult to basically compete with Donald Trump on his own terms and play his game. But what Trump did here is he played their game. For the first time, he got on their level, and then she used this as a fundraising opportunity. I mean, to say that this tweet backfired would be an understatement. Donald Trump just got his ass handed to him by the most boring, milk toast neoliberal Democrat. 
And look, Donald Trump, as you know, the Democratic Party primaries go on, he is going to feel more inclined to speak out because he's going to see these candidates increasingly as a threat and he's going to want to start preemptively attacking them. But what he's going to do is things like this because Donald Trump at his core is an idiot. He is a moron. So he thought that he had this opportunity to attack her because she was talking about global warming in the snow. But no, you just opened the door to an ass whooping Donald Trump. So, I mean, if you're going to criticize her, then there are substantive reasons to criticize her. If you're Donald Trump, I don't know what those reasons would be because you can criticize her from the left. But in terms of criticizing her from the right, since Republicans even like her and she's kind of this individual who always reaches across the aisle, I think Republicans are going to have a difficult time criticizing Amy Klobuchar. One, because she's just an inoffensive person and really she's not a threat. But when you are going to criticize her, if you do things like this, Donald Trump, it's just not going to pan out in your favor. So, um, wow, what a moron. <laughs> so we are going to talk about Howard Schultz's CNN town hall. But before we do that, I just want to take a moment to really reflect on just how damaging this is in the first place, because this is nothing more than a ratings grab for CNN. They're doing this because Howard Schultz is a very polarizing figure. People either love him or hate him. Mostly they hate him, but nonetheless, this is something that we're all going to tune into and watch. But what they're doing here is incredibly damaging to political discourse because they are propping up his candidacy, either wittingly or unwittingly, because the mainstream media is an incredibly powerful force. It's an influencer in American politics, and they can take a candidate who's a joke, and turn that candidate into a credible, viable candidate. And they did this with Donald Trump, because if you all recall, when he initially announced that he was running for president back in 2015, he really was a joke. He literally had to pay people $50 each to hold up signs with his name on it. But with time, the media ended up giving him $2 billion worth of what was essentially free advertising, and they ended up inadvertently legitimizing his candidacy. Now, this is not surprising because political scientists have long documented the impact media has on politics. And if you've taken any upper division political science course, then chances are you've read from political scientists Shanto Ayengar and Donald Kinder, who have published numerous studies that demonstrate just how powerful the mainstream media is. Not only is it able to set the national agenda and therefore influence American political discourse in a really substantial way, but they also have the ability to prime people and to get you to think about things without actually mentioning it explicitly. Furthermore, they actually have the ability to either increase or decrease the salience of political issues. That is, they can get us to care more or less about issues regardless of how objectively important they are. Now, what they can also do is they can legitimize a candidate by giving that individual a lot of coverage, Donald Trump, or they can essentially kill off campaigns and make them less viable simply by ignoring them. So they have a lot of power and who they choose to cover and not cover really is something that we should all be looking at. So the fact that they are covering Howard Schultz, not just in mentioning him, but dedicating literally an hour of primetime coverage when most eyeballs will be towards the screen, that demonstrates that they clearly haven't learned their lesson. because. 
even though they gave Donald Trump nonstop negative coverage, well, that coverage still communicated to people that he was a serious political contender in the 2016 presidential race. And they're doing it again with someone who's clearly a joke. Howard Schultz is the joke of the 2020 election cycle. He's vacuous. He doesn't have any real policy prescriptions. He's just an angry billionaire that doesn't want progressives to get elected because he's worried that his taxes will be raised. But nonetheless, they are dedicating an hour to him, which I cannot tell you how damaging that is. And furthermore, when you think about how they're ignoring other candidates who are actually viable and serious contenders like Tulsi Gabbard and Elizabeth Warren, well, I mean, it's very clear that... This town hall should have never taken place. They should not have given him a town hall in the first place. But nonetheless, since they did, I'm going to try to undo the damage that they did in showing you that this guy is not a viable candidate. He's a fucking joke. And I don't really have to do very much because it's very clear that when he speaks, he not only doesn't know what he's talking about, but he isn't really driven by anything that would help the American people. There's nothing that he's putting at the center of his policy platform. He's just an empty suit who wants to prop himself up and who's running clearly for self-aggrandizing reasons. So to show you just how much of a joke Howard Schultz is, he was asked about the Green New Deal, which as you all know is actually important because the IPCC just gave us 12 years to act on climate change in order to avert catastrophic levels of climate change. How does he respond to the Green New Deal? By calling it immoral for the dumbest reason imaginable. Take a look. When I read the Green New Deal, and I try and understand what they're suggesting. I don't understand how you're gonna give a job for everybody, how you're gonna give free college to everybody, uh, how you're going to create clean energy throughout the country in every building of the land, and then tally this thing up with $32 trillion on Medicare for all. That's about $40 trillion plus. We are sitting, ladies and gentlemen, with $22 trillion of debt on the balance sheet of America. So once again, I, not that I'm a business person or I'm, or I'm an economist, and maybe an economist would disagree with me, but I think it's, not, it's immoral to suggest that we can tally up 20, 30, 40, $50 trillion of debt to solve a problem that could be solved in a different way. So the Green New Deal, which is a collection of policy proposals that would save the planet potentially, is immoral specifically because it would increase our national debt. However, the alternative, which is to do nothing, that's not immoral to Howard Schultz. Allowing the planet to become uninhabitable, that's not immoral, but increasing the national debt is. So we have this environmental issue that existentially threatens human beings. He's more concerned with the debt. Amazing. Now he says that the Green New Deal is too ambitious. Okay, if it's so ambitious that, you know, we're not going to be able to achieve it and it's just unfeasible, then what's your plan? That's right, he doesn't actually have a plan. Now, is the Green New Deal ambitious? Absolutely, but it's ambitious and it's designed to be ambitious because it's meant to accommodate the 12-year timeline that the IPCC gave us. See, the climate 
isn't looking out for what's politically feasible. It's changing rapidly regardless if we do something or not. So what the Green New Deal tries to do is transition us to clean renewable energy within the timeline that will allow us to avert catastrophic levels of climate change. Howard Schultz is old. He's going to die long before a lot of the main really problematic consequences of climate change come to fruition. We're talking about seeing Florida underwater. We're talking about wars over water in the Middle East. He doesn't care, though. This is how much of a joke Howard Schultz is. Now, getting to taxes, we all know that he got in this race, or is contemplating getting in this race, rather, because he doesn't want his taxes to be raised, and the idea of this 70% marginal tax rate on income over $10 million, that's something that he deemed highly undesirable, even punitive. So, so far, he seems to be the candidate who is trying to pander to the small class of billionaires who don't want their taxes raised. But in spite of all of the crying and whining he's done, speaking out against taxes and a 70% marginal tax rate, he did declare this at the town hall. I should be, I, I should be paying more taxes. That was probably the smartest thing I've ever heard Howard Schultz say. But then he goes on this two-minute-long rant about how he's also against the Republican Party's tax plan. So we know that he's against the 70% marginal tax rate above income exceeding $10 million proposed by AOC, but he's also against the Republican Party's tax plan. So we know that his plan is going to be somewhere between tax cuts for the rich and a 70% marginal rate. Okay, so what's your plan? What's your actual plan? He was asked this, and this is the answer he gave. Are you talking about you should pay 2% higher? 10% higher, 20% higher federal income tax? I don't, uh, Poppy, I don't know what the number is. I think what I'm saying is we I, need comprehensive ball, tax reform. Ballpark it for people, because it, it makes a difference. You know, Would it go up to, you know, the, 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 the rate under President Clinton, or are we talking about significantly higher? I, I, what I, I think is what being proposed at 70% is a punitive number, and I think there are better ways to do this. So what's not punitive? I, I don't know what the number is, but I, what I'm suggesting is I should be paying higher taxes. Oh, how convenient. You don't have to. You don't have the specific numbers. <laughs> so he thinks that AOC is too hard on billionaires, but Donald Trump is too soft on billionaires. But yet, he doesn't have a plan of his own. He just knows that he doesn't like the plans that are being proposed by other individuals. Howard, if you want to run for president, then you actually have to think about these things. You have to be serious about policymaking. But he hasn't thought about policymaking. It's almost as if he is a vacuous human being who's only interested in running to promote his book and for self-aggrandizing reasons. As I stated before, but it's worth restating because it's painfully obvious. Now, he doesn't have a plan when it comes to taxes. So what about healthcare? We all know that he hates Medicare for all. He called it un-American. So when he was asked about what his healthcare plan will be, again, he talks about what he doesn't like about, you know, the Republicans, what they're proposing and what the supposed far left is proposing in Medicare for all. But yet he can't articulate what his plan would be. What is your plan to improve our healthcare system? Uh, th again, thank you for the question, and I think this gives me another opportunity to talk about the extreme left and the extreme right. And so we have a health care crisis in the country on many levels, not the least of which is the opioid crisis. But the Republicans, for 10 years, eight years during the Obama presidency in the last two years, have done everything possible to eradicate the Affordable Care Act. And they've done that without offering any plan this is the far right. The far left is now suggesting Medicare for all. That is a $32 trillion number. 
and, then, and just like the issue I brought up before about making all the buildings in America energy uh, uh, free in terms of, of clean energy, mm -hmm. does anyone here really understand that Medicare for all also means that you will lose the choice of your doctor and your private insurance company? Not many people know that. So that would disrupt the entire system and it'll cost $32 trillion. Okay, we've got to pause there because he says that Medicare for All would cost $32 trillion. Wrong. If you're going to talk numbers, then get it right. Our current healthcare system costs $59 trillion over 10 years. If we move to Medicare for All, overall, that would cost $57 trillion. In other words, that would save the American people $2 trillion overall. So if you're actually going to talk numbers and pretend as if you know what you're talking about, get the numbers right, Howard. Second of all, he says, quote, you'd lose your choice of your doctor and your private insurance company. This is also wrong, and it shows how out of touch he is. Currently, with our private for-profit healthcare system, you have limitations on who you can see. You have to choose a doctor that's in your network, and you're also limited to what types of specialists your insurance company will pay for. And when it comes to losing your insurance, this is just one of the dumbest things I think I've ever heard anyone say when talking about Medicare for All, because Americans hate dealing with insurance companies. He doesn't realize this. We hate the paperwork, and most importantly, we hate paying that monthly premium only to find out we have to pay even more money for copays and deductibles if we even try to see a doctor. So you're not going to be able to obfuscate here, Howard, because Americans actually have first-hand experience in dealing with this. Hence why Medicare for All has 70% support among the American population, and now is supported by a majority of Republicans. But remember, the original question that he was asked was, what's your plan? He never answered that question. He just talked about plans he doesn't like. So he was given another chance to explain what his plan was. So Mr. Schultz, so, to that to that question, yeah. and, and because your yeah. question, Riel, was about what's your plan. Yeah. Yeah. And, and many, I think, wonder, is it fair to criticize the left and the right? What is your okay. plan to make sure that every, if it's not Medicare for all, yeah. what is your plan to make sure that every American can get quality affordable okay. health care? First and foremost, th three principles. One, I think everyone in America, every person deserves to have the right for affordable care. Every person. Second, there needs to be competition in the system. And what I mean by that is competition so that the American people can get access to prescription drugs at lower prices, because right now the government is not allowed under a federal law to negotiate with, with, with pharma. The third thing is that it has been tested but not proven yet about interstate commerce among insurance companies. Hmm. But there's no doubt that once again, the healthcare crisis has been with us for a long time. The other issue is I stand by the fact that I supported the Affordable Care Act it covered 20 million people who did not have good insurance, but premiums have gone up double since the Affordable Care Act. So now we've got to go back in and fix the Affordable Care Act and bring premiums down. Competition will do that. So again, he was droning on and basically describing what was Obamacare for the most part, vaguely speaking at least. And finally, the host chimed in to give him another opportunity to actually lay out a specific plan because what he described was not a real plan. It was just platitudes. It was Obamacare-esque platitudes. So she chimed in, gave him another chance to explain himself, and she ended up scaring the shit out of him. But the far right removed... The How? 
How? The yeah. question is how. Yeah. I don't mean to start no, no. you from the back. No. The voice over your shoulder no. over here. But but how specifically? Yeah. <laughs> that was my favorite part of the entire debate. Uh, <laughs> now, we're just going to stop there um, when it comes to healthcare. He just gives more of the same. He doesn't know how to be concise in any of his responses. He just drones on and he's not saying anything. He talks about things that he doesn't know about, so he has to essentially filibuster and pivot to what he doesn't like about other people's plans. Again, Howard, you're running to be the president of the United States. You can't just say, I don't like this, I don't like that. You have to construct policy yourself, but he hasn't thought too deeply about any of this because he's an imbecile. He doesn't know about any of this. So moving on, for those of you, maybe the three people left in the country who actually think that he's not out of touch still, then I think that this next clip should convince you because he literally parroted what was a satirical line from Colbert. So this is what Colbert said before when talking about race. I don't even see race, not even my own. That was a funny joke that poked fun at people with white privilege who tried to pretend as if they're colorblind when really demonstrating how out of touch they are when it comes to issues related to race. Now, keep that in mind when you hear him talk about race in this next clip. As somebody who grew up in a very diverse background as a young boy in the projects, I didn't see color as a young boy, and I honestly don't see color now. Wrong answer. Now, why is that wrong? Well, as Mark Lamont Hill points out on Twitter, he says, please stop saying I don't see color as a means of proving you're not racist. The failure to recognize racial differences keeps whiteness positioned as the norm and reinforces racism. It sends the message that you can only see my humanity because you can't see my blackness. And he's 100% right there, but it shows, you know, in given, giving that answer, Howard Schultz hasn't thought about this. He he hasn't spoken to any black leaders. He hasn't tried to reach out to the community and talk to people from the community. He's just a billionaire who, again, got in the race because he doesn't want his taxes raised. His only constituency is rich people or excuse me, people of wealth, because it seems as if um, saying billionaire is a controversial term, according to Howard Schultz. The, the moniker billionaire now has become the, the catchphrase. I would rephrase that and I would say that people of, of means have been able to leverage their wealth. But getting to the question we all want answered, whether or not he'd still run knowing that he would be a spoiler potentially and hand Donald Trump a second term easily. This is his non-answer. Yes or no? Is there any world in which you run as a Democrat? No. Okay. There I, you go. I, I, no, I, I didn't have to think about that. Okay. No, and I, I have nothing against so, the Democratic Party. It just I, so I don't feel represented. To, to that point, you have said, and you just repeated it, that you promise that you will not be a spoiler, that you will yes. not run, that you will yeah. not continue running if it would mean a second term for President Trump. Okay. If you run, Mr. Schultz, and yes. if you look at the polls in the fall of 2020, and it looks like you are going to be a spoiler, like you will get President Trump reelected. Will you drop out of the race? Okay, a very important question. So let's clarify this right now, right here on national TV on CNN. First off, the issue of being a spoiler, how can you spoil a system that is already broken? It's, it's just not working. So it's not, it's, not a right, it's not the right word 
Now, what I've said publicly, and I want to repeat, if the math doesn't tally up when I get to the next three or four months and I take my message out to the American people and I continue to talk this way about how concerned I am about the country and how much I think we can do so much better under a different process, if the numbers don't add up, I will not run for president because I will not do anything whatsoever to reelect Donald Trump. But no one wants to see him fired more than the, me. Mr. Schultz, the fall of the, the fall of 2020 is what I was asking yeah. about. If you do run and the numbers don't add up your way and it looks like it would mean a second term for the president, would you commit to dropping out? What I've just said is I, I am not going to run for president if it looks in any way, shape, but or form. But, you know, look at 2016. Yeah, yeah. Things change. Yeah, well, they, they do change. But at this point right now, I'm asking a different question. In other words, no. If his campaign doesn't gain any steam, then, you know, sure, he's not going to run. But in the event he's already running and polls then determine that he would, in fact, be a spoiler then no, he's not going to drop out because he already spent the time to campaign, so why drop out? So this is a selfish billionaire who is literally contemplating jumping in the race in the event someone on the so-called far left, like Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, or Tulsi Gabbard, get the Democratic Party nomination. What a disgusting person. And he said that using the word spoiler is not the right terminology because, quote, how can you spoil a system that's already broken? Now, when he says this, it's technically true. We all think that the system is broken, but you need to look at this from the context of a billionaire saying it. In his view, the reason why the system is broken is due to rising extremism on both sides of the political spectrum. So if a supposedly far-left candidate like Bernie Sanders becomes the Democratic Party nominee, there's nothing really to spoil because Americans won't be happy with that outcome either way. Except the reason why people think the system is broken, Howard, is specifically because of people like you. It's because of the influence billionaires have on our elections. It's because of money and politics, because average people are not being represented. But then he says, I'm not being represented by the Democratic Party. Oh, boo-hoo. Poor billionaire isn't being represented. Howard, you don't need representation. You are a billionaire. You have as much wealth as small countries. You can be perfectly self-sufficient, never having anyone in Congress that represents your ideology. But he's wrong here. The Democratic Party does look out for billionaires. He's wrong. Absolutely, he is represented by not just the Democratic Party, but the Republican Party as well. They just gave you a tax cut. So how can you not feel represented, Howard? It's just that this is someone who is selfish. He's only thinking about himself. And this is exactly why Pretty much everyone hates him, and every single tweet he posts gets ratioed. So overall, what this town hall demonstrated is that he's out of touch, he lacks charisma, he has no cohesive message or vision for America, and he's absolutely not a serious candidate. Which is why, again, I want to get back to the original point that I made. CNN and mainstream media is going to fuck up and make him a credible candidate by covering him. They did it with Donald Trump who is not just dim-witted, but was not a serious candidate, who had no real grassroots support to begin with. And they're possibly going to do it again with Howard Schultz.
And why? Because they don't necessarily care about American political discourse, nor do they care about informing you about this person's policies, because he has no policies. This was a ratings grab. They know that you're going to tune in and see Howard Schultz. They know that people are going to be drawn to this, regardless if they love or hate Howard Schultz. And they did it because they want to make money. You don't have to be a political commentator to see that even the most centrist, neoliberal, establishment-friendly 2020 Democratic Party presidential contender is sounding more and more like Bernie Sanders, at least when it comes to the economy and economic issues. However, when it comes to the issue of foreign policy thus far, even if it's still early, there is a serious lack of anyone really laying out a truly progressive foreign policy vision, with the exception of one person, Tulsi Gabbard. And if you are running to be the commander-in-chief, then foreign policy should be something that you talk about quite extensively, but really nobody's talking about that. Do you have a foreign policy vision where you try to nation-build and direct, you know, the empire just to different regimes in different countries, or are you actually going to bring the troops home and stop advocating for more wars. Stop being the party that goes along with neocons and Republicans when they opt for more regime change wars. And at this point, it just doesn't look very good. Take the issue of Venezuela, for example. Kirsten Gillibrand actually supports the U.S. coup, saying we should recognize Juan Guaido as the president of Venezuela. John Delaney says Pretty much the same thing. Cory Booker and Amy Klobuchar have expressed reservations about Maduro, but still haven't really said much. We have others like Sherrod Brown, Elizabeth Warren, and Pete Buttigieg giving vague responses about Venezuela needing free and fair elections, not really saying much. We have Bernie Sanders putting out a really milquetoast response, speaking out against regime change and military intervention, but not really straying too far from the D.C. consensus here. In other words, nobody, no candidate thus far has really taken a strong, unequivocal stance against any U.S. meddling in Venezuela. Except for Tulsi Gabbard. She said this, The U.S. needs to stop using our military for regime change and stop intervening in Venezuela's military. Throughout history, U.S.-led regime change has been waged in the name of humanitarianism, but has resulted in more suffering, destruction, and lives lost. Hands off Venezuela. And that's not the only statement that she gave, because she also called out Donald Trump's insidious agenda for Venezuela when she launched her campaign just a couple of weeks ago. Now, President Trump campaigned against regime change wars when he ran for president. But now he bows to the wishes of the neocons who surround him, clamoring for regime change wars that he claimed to oppose this time in Venezuela and in Iran. These powerful politicians dishonor the sacrifices made by every one of my brothers and sisters in uniform, their families, as they are the ones who pay the price for these wars. In fact, every American pays the price for these wars that have cost us trillions of dollars since 9-11. Every dollar that we spend on regime change wars or on the new Cold War and this nuclear arms race is a dollar coming out of our pockets. Dollars that should be used to address the very real urgent needs of our people and our communities right here at home. Yeah. 
Now, in case you missed it, she also did something that no other 2020 candidate has been willing to do thus far. She called out the saber-rattling against Russia because, I mean, it's easy to see that there's this new DC consensus in both parties that we have to take an adversarial stance against Russia. When normal Americans don't want that, we don't want to live through another Cold War. Stop saber-rattling. Stop being hawkish. Stop escalating. Stop using NATO troops to intimidate Russia at their border. Stop trying to push for more escalations. Now, they do this because the military-industrial complex makes profits from this. Even if there's not war, they still make money from saber-rattling. They still have their stocks increase when candidates in both parties talk about war or talk in a really hawkish manner. So what Tulsi's doing here is something that no other candidate at this point has been willing to do. Now, also, she called out warmongers, and she took a snippet of her launch speech, and she turned it into an ad that I thought was phenomenal. We must stand up. Stand up against powerful politicians from both parties who sit in their ivory towers, thinking up new wars to wage, new places for people to die, wasting trillions of our taxpayer dollars, hundreds of thousands of lives, and undermining our economy and our security and destroying our middle class. It was short, but sweet, uh, very concise. It got right to the point that she needed to make. That is what candidates should be doing. You run an ad that is 100% substance-based. Cut out all the bullshit about your personal stories. Cut out all the platitudes and just say it. Take a stand against war. So that was phenomenal. She also did something that was really clever, and she criticized neocons and neolibs simultaneously because this is something we don't really talk about much, but neoliberalism and neoconservatism are often fused because you have this regime change mentality that also is complemented by capitalism and free markets because not only do you want intervention for purposes of U.S., national interests, but you want it because that helps out defense contractors. And in this next ad here, Tulsi Gabbard calls them both out because that's actually what's happening. We must stand united and stand strong against those in both parties who never tire of war. Neocons and neolibs who drag us from one regime change war to the next and who are exacerbating the new Cold War, pushing us to the brink of nuclear war. We deserve better. Our country deserves better. So that was absolutely fantastic. And thus far, Tulsi Gabbard is the only candidate who is serious about promoting an anti-regime change, anti-war agenda. Now, with that being said, you all know that I have my questions about Tulsi Gabbard. Uh, what does she say about torture now? Her voting record has been pretty much anti-torture. That's great. What about drone strikes? 
Are you against drone strikes? Because even if you're against regime change wars, you still have to stop these drone strikes because that violates the territorial integrity and sovereignty of these other countries. And quite frankly, they're illegal. They're against international law. Now you might say, well, why does that matter, Mike? Well, put it this way. If you had Russia doing drone strikes in Texas, would you not feel as if they didn't have the right to do that? Of course. We are terrorizing citizens in these countries. So she once said that she is a hawk when it comes to fighting terrorism, but she's a dove when it comes to regime change wars. I want to hear more about that. I want to know her stance on Israel-Palestine. So these are things that I want to know more about, but at this point, it's safe to say that Tulsi Gabbard is really the only person who is talking about this, and she's setting a bar that's very high. And she's basically elevating this issue and putting it in the conversation when it's been completely absent up until this point. Now, you all know that I'm a Bernie guy, and either Elizabeth Warren or Tulsi Gabbard is my number two, but with that being said, seeing Tulsi campaign, since she's launched, launched, she's only gone up in my book. She's only gone up in my book. Elizabeth Warren has kind of stayed the same. She's done things that got on my nerves. For example, she stood up and applauded Donald Trump when he said that America will never be a socialist nation. To be fair, I don't know if Tulsi did or not because I can't see her in the video, but um, that irritated me. But then at her launch event, she actually talked about an economic agenda that was very bold, that was very progressive. So I mean, it's difficult to say who's my true number two, but this is what I will say. Initially, I was leaning towards a Bernie Warren ticket but I'm starting to lean more and more towards the combination of either a Bernie-Tulsi ticket or an Elizabeth Warren-Tulsi ticket, because if you have Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren on the same ticket, even if that may be, I think, more acceptable to the establishment, well, you're just getting a lot of overlap because they're both really good on economic issues. But we need someone who's actually going to be good on foreign policy issues because there's been this consensus that has been crafted over the past couple of years where both parties have essentially become neoconservative. We see saber rattling. We see Democrats taking an opposition to Donald Trump trying to do peace in North Korea, and even if he's in over his head and doesn't know what he's doing, you shouldn't just by default be against him because it's Donald Trump and any and all things he does is bad. If he's doing something good, then let him do something good. But they actually tried to stop him when he tried to put forward this plan to stop these military games and exercises that the United States does with South Korea near North Korea. So, there's too many pro-war Democrats. They need to get back to the party that is anti-war, that's against the Iraq war, that's against intervention and U.S. imperialism. At this point, Tulsi Gabbard is the only person who's serious when it comes to that. So that's why increasingly I'm leaning more and more towards a Tulsi and Warren or a Tulsi and Sanders ticket. Because if you've got Bernie and Warren, even though that'd be a great ticket, there's just going to be a lot of overlap and no real urge to make the Democratic Party less hawkish and, you know, less militaristic, which I think is incredibly important now. And that's also going to appeal to libertarians. So Tulsi Gabbard is definitely someone to watch because even if there's a virtual blackout of her campaign in the mainstream media, you know, when there you see these articles by Harry Anton of CNN, who will talk about how diverse the field is and talk about how all of these candidates could be poised to make history, they don't talk about Tulsi Gabbard, who checks the most boxes. Not only would she be the first female president, she'd be the first Hindu president, and 
woman of color president. She checks all of those boxes. So, you know, there's this blackout. There's also the smears. There's the McCarthyite smear by NBC. But I don't think that these things are going to hurt her. There's real support for Tulsi Gabbard on the ground. And that's a good thing. I am worried, admittedly, about vote splitting on the progressive left. I think it's best if we consolidate our votes. But with that being said, what Tulsi is adding to the conversation is important. Foreign policy matters. And the fact that she's really the only person thus far who's talking about foreign policy and who has put forth a real anti-war agenda, that's important. It says a lot. So let's talk about the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, who is now running for president, Pete Buttigieg. Now, I pretty much from the start just wrote him off when he announced that he was running for president in 2020, because back in 2017, when he was running to be the DNC chair, I was thoroughly unimpressed by him because he just seemed as if he was just another establishment figure who is willing to play patty cake with the establishment. He really tried to downplay the really important civil war that's going on within the Democratic Party and is still going on. He would refuse to unequivocally state whether or not the DNC rigged the primary against Bernie Sanders in 2016, and he just seemed pretty milk toast for the most part. And I still believe that a lot of that is largely true, to be honest. But nonetheless, he's running for president, and it seems as if he's starting to pick up steam. I wouldn't necessarily say that he has a lot of grassroots support, because just, you know, so far, I don't see that yet. But he's saying a lot of things that are honestly impressive to me. So, for example, he was on Morning Joe, and he was talking about healthcare. Now, throughout the course of this interview, they were trying to press him and get him to put himself in either the progressive or establishment camp, and he wouldn't take the bait. Now, fence-sitting on this issue, it irritates me because you're either with progressives or you're an establishment figure. You can't really play both sides, and I think that that's what he wants to do, but at his core, he seems to be more progressive and um, left-leaning, although we don't know everything about his record and whatnot, but he was talking about healthcare as they were trying to press him on these issues, saying, well, you clearly are more progressive because you support the Green New Deal and Medicare for All, but what he says about healthcare specifically, it really did impress me because he's saying things that are really unorthodox, things that you wouldn't necessarily hear if you turned on the mainstream media and especially Morning Joe. Take a look. And you're for the Green New Deal. Excuse me, the Green New Deal. You're for Medicare for all with a few asterisks. Um, You see this tension between democracy and capitalism, which some of us don't see or at least see that it can work out. It sounds like you're going to get defined pretty far over on the progressive spectrum. Look, I think what we have to decide is, are we going to keep being defined by these where these fence posts are, or are we going to do what the right very successfully did over the last 40 years and redefine them? Medicare for All is a great example. Again, you know, ACA, which was a conservative proposal, came to be caricatured as left-wing by a very disciplined right-wing message machine, right? What is Medicare for All? It's a compromise. I mean, in the UK, 
you got national health care. That would be the left wing, the true left wing position. The true right wing position is free for all, all corporate. And the compromise position is a single payer system where you have private doctors but a public payer. Uh, we've got to stop allowing the right to move the, the goalposts and characterize the but, no, entire but, but, center but, but, of the Respectfully, debate. it's not the right that's moving at the moment. It's, it's the Democrats. The Democrats are looking at all. We have 15 candidates who are trying to figure out. Yeah. And so naturally, it's not surprising, and I don't think it's wrong that we try to figure out where people line up on all these important issues. Well, absolutely. And you seem to line up closer to the left side of the page than the right side of the page within the Democratic Party. That's all. That was actually fantastic. He was pretty much 99% correct there. Um, and he said things about socialism in other interviews that also were very accurate. He says that, you know, socialism nowadays, it's not as problematic as it used to be when it was really this big buzzword because now it's lost all meaning because look at what the Republican Party did to the Affordable Care Act. This was a right-wing healthcare proposal that was caricatured as this left-wing socialist thing and they, they kind of played all of their cards too early and now it's coming back to bite them in the ass, the Republican Party that is specifically. So when he talks about Medicare for All being a compromise between a national health system and a for-profit system, that's exactly it. And we need someone to say this in mainstream media because they need to actually correct the record. Not to invoke that super PAC with David Brock, but to, to actually correct the record in terms of setting people straight, setting the pundit class straight and saying, look, it's not that Democrats are moving back to the left, but it's that we're trying to correct the Overton window and moderate both parties so that way they're more aligned with the median American who supports increasing the minimum wage, who supports legalizing recreational marijuana, who supports Medicare for all, a federal jobs guarantee, Green New Deal, who supports all of these things. So it's not radical if the average American supports things like Medicare for all. And that's exactly what they needed to hear. And of all people, I didn't expect Pete to say that. Now, additionally, um, he went into a little bit more detail about the right-wing Overton window and everything he explained here, 100% accurate. But there's also the bigger project of making sure that the center of gravity of American politics is actually lined up with the center of gravity of the American people. I mean, today on the anniversary of the Parkland shooting, for example, you got something like universal background checks that command support from 80, maybe 90% of the American people, something that most Republicans, most gun owners are on board with. And yet, if you looked in Congress, you would think that was a left-wing position. Right. So. You know, we've got to acknowledge that the right did a masterful job over the last 40 years of being willing, even if it meant losing in the short term, to pull the entire center of gravity of the American political spectrum further right than where most American people already are. Most Americans get that everybody ought to have health care. Most Americans get that wages are too low and we've got to do something about that. And I don't think it's a crazy left-wing idea that we ought to have a sense of urgency, a sense of emergency even, as somebody who's thinking about what the world's going to look like in 2054 when I get to the current age of the current president, that we got to do something about climate change that acknowledges it as a, an emergency that really is in its destructive power on par with something like the Great Depression or World War II. So of course we got to have something on the scale of a Green New Deal. That's not uh, left-wingism, that's pragmatism. So that was important for two reasons. First of all, it's important because nobody in mainstream media ever talks about the Overton window. Now, he didn't say the words Overton window, but that's basically what he was alluding to. He was saying, look, 
the the Overton window in this country has essentially shifted so far to the right that what is the moderate left position now seems radical because of the perspective that we've all construed in our minds. But in actuality, people aren't far leftists if they support things like Medicare for All or, or the Green New Deal. This is the practical approach. And that was the second reason why this was important. What he said was important because he's redefining what pragmatism means because we've been kind of taught that pragmatism in the Washington, D.C. sense means that you just simply meet Republicans halfway and compromise with them. But what he's saying is, no, what being pragmatic means in actuality is taking the left-wing position. So he actually has gone up in my book after hearing him. Um, at this point, you know, with my rankings, Bernie Sanders is a strong number one. And then when it comes to number two, I'm still conflicted on Elizabeth Warren and Tulsi Gabbard. You know, I start to lean one way or the other and then change my mind. So I was leaning a little bit towards Elizabeth Warren, admittedly. And then she stood up and cheered for Donald Trump when he said that we'll never be a socialist country. That pissed me off. She went back down. So I'm still conflicted, right? I'm conflicted between Tulsi and Warren for number two. But when it comes to my um, fourth slot, now I'm conflicted between Andrew Yang and um, and Pete Booty Judge here. I'm going to fuck up his name a lot, but, um, you know, we'll we'll roll with it. Um, I'm conflicted between them because Andrew Yang, ideally speaking, is better than Pete Booty Judge because he's anti-establishment. He supports universal basic income. But as far as I know, he doesn't support free college. And also, he has these right wing tendencies that I don't like. For example, Kyle Kalinske brought up how he is in support of policy where he automatically has a sunset clause for all regulations. Yeah, I just, I vehemently disagree with that. I am wholeheartedly against that. So now, since Pete Buttigieg has gone up in my mind, we kind of see him competing with Andrew Yang for number four. So we have Bernie at number one, tied for, you know, two and three is Elizabeth Warren and Tulsi Gabbard, and now for four and five, it's a tie between Andrew Yang and Pete Buttigieg. He's supporting the right policies, he's talking about things that you wouldn't necessarily hear a DC politician talk about, and maybe that's because he does have that outsider perspective. He's a mayor, he's not in that DC bubble, so not being entrenched, it really does make a difference. You know, not being entrenched in DC orthodoxy, you can see the impact it has on him. He's a lot more clear-headed when it comes to just explaining things that is obvious, but not to someone in that elitist bubble. Now, just for shits and giggles, I'm going to play a clip of Claire McCaskill, who, as you all know, was hired by Morning Joe, and the questions she chose to ask. Keep in mind, there are seemingly infinite numbers of things you can ask candidates about. This is what she chose to ask him about. How many languages do you speak? You are someone who clearly has been interested in learning more and being intellectually curious. And how important do you think that is for a president of the United States? <laughs> oh, Claire McCaskill, always bringing the substance, asking the questions nobody cares about. Brilliant. The 2020 presidential election is still more than a year and a half away, but already there's one prominent progressive that has decided to throw their weight behind a candidate. And that individual is Barbara Lee, and who she decided to endorse may or may not surprise you. She is endorsing Kamala Harris. 
So she tweeted this out, quote, I am thrilled to endorse Kamala Harris for our next president of these United States. She has dedicated her life to the pursuit of equality, fairness, and dignity for all. I know Kamala will be a president truly of the people, by the people, and for the people. Now, of course, if you know anything about Kamala Harris's record, it's kind of a questionable statement. Is her past as a prosecutor and as California Attorney General 100% negative? No, but there are enough red flags that are cause for concern. So it is interesting because, you know, ideologically speaking, Barbara Lee, she is someone who would align more obviously with the likes of Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Tulsi Gabbard, Andrew Yang, but this isn't too surprising so long as you would have connected the dots. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, it already seemed to be the case that Kamala Harris was the anointed candidate of the establishment. In fact, I think they probably chose her back in 2017, back when she met with Clinton donors in the Hamptons, and the donor class was abuzz about Kamala Harris. The establishment already decided that's their candidate. Now, when you consider the fact that Barbara Lee is kind of an establishment progressive like Elizabeth Warren, where she has this really bold progressive record. Nobody can take that away from her, right? She's been progressive her entire career, and she's been a trailblazer. But with that being said, she's an establishment progressive in the sense that she's not going to do anything that will offend the establishment. She's not going to go against the establishment. She also is going to remain loyal to her party. She's going to be a good Democrat, if you will. So when you acknowledge the fact that Barbara Lee, in spite of her record, is still an establishment progressive, and the fact that the establishment already lined up behind Kamala Harris, if you put two and two together, this isn't very surprising, to be honest. But nonetheless, it's still disappointing, of course, because it's only February. So you really don't have any reason to endorse this early. You know, it would probably make more sense to wait and see how this is going to play out, how the debates go, how the polls look. But, you know, not only is she the establishment's pick, but Kamala Harris is already running a pretty solid campaign with some grassroots support. So, you know, if you're going to throw your weight behind anyone, then of the people that's announced thus far, I'd imagine it'd be either Kamala Harris or Elizabeth Warren, and she opted to go for the safe choice, which is Kamala Harris. Now, look, I need you all to understand something, and I want you to prepare yourself psychologically so you're not too disappointed. There will be inevitable disappointments in 2020. People who you respect, progressives, they're probably going to let you down. So you need to accommodate that and expect disappointments. Embed these disappointments into your expectations about 2020 because it's bound to happen. There are going to be progressives that we like and respect that may not endorse who we want them to endorse. They may do things that, you know, are going to be disappointing to us. So you need to protect yourself psychologically and understand that this is bound to happen. Um, Back in 2016, there were so many disappointments. There was, you know, the infamous Elizabeth Warren incident where she endorsed Hillary Clinton over Bernie Sanders, left him hanging in Massachusetts. Um, there was when Bernie Sanders endorsed Hillary Clinton, which wasn't surprising at all, but still nonetheless, you know, it sucked to see. And, you know, we just have to deal with it. But it is disappointing, right? Because Barbara Lee is someone who is a progressive leader. And 
she was fucked over by the establishment not too long ago when Hakeem Jeffries leapfrogged her for a leadership position. So, you know, it's disappointing to see her still um, doing what the establishment wants, but nonetheless, that's her choice. She can do what she wants and nobody's going to change that. We can't change that. All we can do is fight for the candidate who we believe in the most. Endorsements matter to a certain extent, but this isn't going to make or break the 2020 election, right? One endorsement won't. Um, and at the end of the day, all we can do is control ourselves and fight for the candidate who we want. It's disappointing, but I'm honestly, like, I, I don't feel um, heartbroken or anything like that. Certainly, I would have loved for her to not endorse Kamala Harris, maybe someone who's more progressive, like Elizabeth Warren, or ideally Bernie Sanders, but at the end of the day, this isn't, this isn't something that, you know, is very surprising, and I expect other progressives who I respect to let me down in 2020, because politics is it's about this ongoing struggle with some victories disappointments it's it's just part of the process so i want you guys to not be too down because of this and acknowledge that you know barbara lee's just doing what the establishment clearly wants you know she's going with the safe choice and if you endorse Kamala Harris, like other Democrats have already done, like Ted Lieu, for example, then you're making a safe choice. It's an inoffensive choice. I am obviously disappointed because I love and respect Barbara Lee, but, you know, certainly this is something that still sucks. You know, it's it sucks to see people who are your heroes do things that really seem counterintuitive, that are contrary to what they fought for for their entire careers. And when Elizabeth Warren endorsed Hillary over Bernie, someone who is not ideologically close to her, you know, it seemed like a betrayal. So I get how people would see that this doesn't make sense, but if you really understand that there are establishment progressives who instinctually, and have, you know, they're progressive and they have this progressive record, but they still do what the establishment wants, and you acknowledge that Barbara Lee probably falls within that category, then this shouldn't be too surprising. But just understand that you know, there's, there's probably going to be more disappointment, mark my words. So, um, you know, we'll just, we'll roll with it, but don't let it get you down. Just fight 10 times harder for the candidate who you want. And, you know, I hope that that's Bernie Sanders because not only is he our best shot at beating Donald Trump, but he's probably the most solid chance we have at getting social democracy. 2020 presidential candidate Andrew Yang recently appeared on an episode of the Joe Rogan podcast, and he said something that was really interesting and um, kind of a bombshell, not a surprising one, but a bombshell nonetheless with regard to the 2016 presidential election and uh, Bernie Sanders. Uh, I will say that apparently the mainstream press had it out for Bernie last time where they were just going to like, I have a friend who worked in the media and they were mm -hmm. like, just like, you know, kneecap Bernie. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Why was he going to kneecap Bernie? <laughs> Um, I don't know. It's like, like there's definitely something going on where like certain corporate media companies have certain candidates they kind of want to tip the scales for a little bit right, and people that right. they want to like tip it against. Well, they thought that Bernie was going to get in the way of Hillary winning. Is that the idea? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they, they were in the Hillary camp for sure. Yeah. And so that wasn't just the media. That was also the DNC, which is now on the record. So... Now, happily, certainly the DNC has turned a totally different leaf where the DNC is like, we're not going to do anything that like <laughs> interferes with anyone's prospects. Well, what they did was a disaster. Yeah. A yeah. Disaster they, in terms of public image too. 
yeah, yeah, it was both substantively and like perception wise a disaster for them. So this time I got to say, and and that that team is turned over almost entirely. Like it's mm-hmm. almost totally different people. Right. And then the media, I we we have the sense that you know they're they're still feeling out who they're going to try and uh, put the thumb on the the, the scale for. Uh, so Bernie Bernie is still running though, right? Um, it looks like he's running, yeah. That was interesting, but it's not surprising. And I say that because at this point, we all know a lot about what happened in 2016. We know that there was a media blackout of Bernie Sanders. Ed Schultz revealed that the president of MSNBC called him and demanded that he not cover the launch of Bernie Sanders' campaign in 2016. And this really... It's not too surprising. There were Clinton operatives on the Clinton machine payroll that were presenting themselves as neutral arbiters or Democratic Party strategists when they were actually shills, literal shills for the Clinton campaign. So we already know that the media bias against Bernie Sanders was prevalent, and it's still going to be an issue that we are going to have to deal with going into 2020. But to hear him use the word kneecaps specifically, that's a really strong word to use because it's not just like they were ambivalent towards Bernie Sanders. It's not just that they didn't want to cover Bernie because they preferred Hillary Clinton. No, they wanted to kneecap Bernie Sanders, according to Andrew Yang, which is really, that's that's a strong statement, right? Because they're actively trying to stop his campaign from being successful it's not surprising but i do think that we need to talk about this i hate relitigating 2016 because it seems like everyone wants to do that but um we need to remind the establishment essentially that we still remember what happened in 2016 and we will not allow you to do that again we're watching every single move you make and we will not hesitate to sound the alarm because we're not going to allow you to undermine our will again because look what happened last time we got donald trump you rigged it for a candidate who sucked and ended up losing to an orange clown so it's not gonna happen again we're not gonna let you do that again they're certainly gonna try we already see the Californian Democratic Party moving up their primary date to accommodate Kamala Harris maybe give her an early pledged delegate lead so they're already trying to do things to help defeat Bernie Sanders they're trying to ignore Bernie Sanders but we're watching them and um this is interesting I'm glad that Andrew Yang brought this up about a media friend who wanted to kneecap Bernie Sanders or I don't necessarily know there's a little bit of confusion was his media friend specifically wanting to kneecap Bernie Sanders or was that just the general consensus among media elites? I'm not sure there's a little bit of the lack of clarity there, but for the most part, what Andrew Yang is saying, you know, this is, this is, it's certainly shocking, but I think that we've all been desensitized after seeing all of the fuckery um, in 2016 and learning more about what they did in 2017. Um, so even if it isn't surprising, I've used that word so many times, I need to think of more synonyms, even if it's not surprising, um, you know, this is still important, and I'm glad that he brought this to all of our attentions, uh, to remind us that we, we still need to be vigilant against any shenanigans that will probably ensue going into 2020. A crucial part of discussions surrounding the 2020 Democratic Party primaries is who is the candidate who is the best positioned to beat Donald Trump? 
If you're a progressive, then obviously your number one answer is always going to be Bernie Sanders. For me, I also think that Tulsi Gabbard would be an incredibly powerful force against Donald Trump because she really has taken this strong anti-war stance, and that would appeal to a lot of libertarians. Elizabeth Warren, I'm worried because if she were to face off against Donald Trump, I just don't think she knows how to take him on. I feel like she'd have to feel the need to respond to like every insult and it could just be a disaster he could bring her down she'd try to play on his level and not just stick to policy a lot of us are thinking about who can take on donald trump because we want to beat him because we need to beat him especially because of the supreme court now one thing many of us hadn't probably considered yet is who does donald trump think is his biggest competition who's a threat to him and we actually got some insight according to a new political article that says he actually does have a couple of candidates who he is worried about now as alex eisenstadt of political reports donald trump's political advisors are homing in on three declared democratic candidates who they believe are the most viable at this early stage of the campaign the re-election campaign has begun compiling opposition research on kamala harris elizabeth warren and cory booker and is eyeing opportunities to attack them the effort began over the weekend when the trump campaign sent out a news release ahead of warren's launch criticizing her past claims of Native American heritage. Trump's advisors are certain the list announced Democratic candidates will grow exponentially before the first primary debate in June, and that their targets are certain to fluctuate over time. Yet, the early assessment provides a window into how Trump world views the emerging Democratic field, a sprawling, largely undefined group that lacks a clear frontrunner. Interviews with more than two dozen of the president's closest advisors revealed that the Trump operation is watching the opening days of the Democratic primary with a mix of relief over the field's sprint to the left, surprise over Harris's impressive launch, and trepidation over the prospect of Joe Biden and Sherrod Brown threatening Trump's Midwest stranglehold. Trump has told allies he sees Biden, who remains undecided on a 2020 bid as the most formidable potential general election rival. The president has said privately that Biden would appeal to a wider swath of voters than other Democratic hopefuls. So in other words, Donald Trump and those within Trump world are completely fucking clueless. And I couldn't be happier about that fact. And nowhere in this article was Bernie Sanders' name mentioned even once. So they're underestimating their biggest threat, and I couldn't be happier about that. So Trump's team, they look to people like Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, and Cory Booker. That's who his team views as threats, but Donald Trump thinks that Joe Biden is his biggest threat. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Does anyone actually think that Joe Biden will be successful in the primaries? I mean, he's polling currently in first place in pretty much all the recent polls that have come out in the past couple of months, but... We're all kind of just expecting him to faceplant, or as Chapel Trap House puts it, get me too out of the race. 
quickly because Joe Biden is someone who's so unlikable that the more he talks, the more his numbers will go down. Now, we haven't heard much from him, but I am assuming his numbers will go down. We don't know, right, because anything can happen, but he's unlikable. This is an anti-establishment election again, and I, I just I can't see how he would rationalize Joe Biden, of all people, being his biggest threat, but this is Donald Trump. So it's not too surprising. I also find it really interesting how they feel relieved that they're all racing to the left. They are not going to know what's coming because they still think that it is going to benefit and really behoove a Democrat who's going to rush to the center in order to outflank Donald Trump from his right, possibly on certain issues. Now, I don't know how Donald Trump doesn't realize that that's a horrible strategy because he just was victorious over a candidate that tried to do that. Hillary Clinton tried to outflank him from his right on certain issues like trade and certain aspects of foreign policy, and she lost. So if you're Donald Trump, you're an anti-establishment figure, and you know that there's this anti-establishment fervor in the country, a wave that you rode into the White House on, I really find it interesting that he doesn't see it and doesn't see Bernie or Tulsi as the threats. But nonetheless, this is Donald Trump. He kind of just shoots from the hip. And I think he accidentally got himself in, into the White House in large part due to the media sensationalizing his campaign and also because he at least had the instincts enough to realize this was an anti-establishment election and everyone was dissatisfied with the establishment. But all of a sudden he thinks we're okay with the establishment again. Maybe he is thinking of it in terms of, well, you know, I'm anti-establishment, which he's not in actuality, but he's saying I'm anti-establishment and people maybe don't like me. So maybe they're going to opt for the establishment again. I don't know. But all I know is I'm very happy that they're underestimating their biggest threat, which undoubtedly is Bernie Sanders. Because we all know Bernie would have won. And I do believe Donald Trump will be more difficult to beat this time than in 2016. But nonetheless, if anyone's going to threaten Donald Trump and his re-election chances, it's going to be Bernie Sanders. I have no doubt about that in my mind, but he doesn't see it. And that's good for all of us. We want him to underestimate Bernie. We want him to ignore Bernie. We want him to not think of Bernie Sanders as a threat. Because when Bernie Sanders does end up running then I want Donald Trump to not know what hit him. I want Bernie Sanders to be such a surprisingly formidable force to Donald Trump that they are ill-equipped to deal with Bernie Sanders, that they don't know how to deal with Bernie Sanders. It's clear they don't really know how to deal with Elizabeth Warren, even though I think that I worry about Elizabeth Warren going up against Donald Trump. The only attack that he keeps uh, bringing up is the Native American thing. Okay, you can only bring that up so much, but if you don't have other reasons to attack Elizabeth Warren, then I just, long term, I don't think that it's going to make you successful. And with Bernie Sanders, I don't even know what he'd attack Bernie Sanders on. We all know he'd call him crazy Bernie and call him a socialist, but Bernie Sanders is someone who is going to be glued to the policy, so it really doesn't matter what attacks Donald Trump brings up. Because I think Bernie Sanders is going to continue to talk about the same shit he's been talking about for decades. 
So I'm glad that they're underestimating Bernie Sanders. If they're smart, they wouldn't. They would see him for the threat that he is. But nonetheless, this is good for all of us that he's not thinking about Bernie Sanders strategically and that he isn't even coming up in the conversation because that's going to help us a lot more in ultimately defeating Donald Trump in the ideal event where Bernie Sanders goes on to become the Democratic Party's nominee. I want to share a story with you guys that really demonstrates just how unhinged the president is becoming. Because he saw a Democratic senator at an event, approached him in a hostile way, and confronted him in what was probably one of the most bizarre things I've read about in quite some time. I'm actually a little bit surprised that this isn't picking up more steam in the mainstream media because this is just, it's all around a really weird and downright troubling story. Because think about this, as I read you the details of this story, this is the individual who has their hand on the nuclear button. So, as Gabby Orr of Politico reports, the night before last week's National Prayer Breakfast, President Donald Trump was hosting religious leaders and lawmakers for dinner at the White House when he spotted Democratic Senator Chris Coons and pounced. Trump confronted the Delaware lawmaker who attended the event as the prayer breakfast's official Democratic co-chair over the issue of abortion, creating a tense scene in the White House Blue Room, according to three sources familiar with the exchange. Trump leaned in close to Coons, who calls himself a practicing Christian and a devout Presbyterian, and laced into the Democratic senator over controversial moves to change statewide policies on abortion that have roiled New York and Virginia politics in recent weeks. He was in his face about it, said one person familiar with the exchange. The person described Trump as extremely worked up. He saw a Democrat in the room, a Democrat who's known to be a person of faith, and he was like, why aren't you speaking out about this? The source added. Another source who was in the room confirmed the account, describing the moment as both awkward and attention-grabbing. Rarely has Trump been so vocal about abortion when the masses aren't watching, this person said. A Coons spokesperson person declined to comment. Now, the story goes on to speculate about him hoping that the story would get out so he'd seem, you know, like a bigger ally to the evangelical anti-abortion movement. But nonetheless, this is still really weird. The president saw a Democrat and decided to confront him in a very hostile and intimidating way. This is weird. Donald Trump was already unhinged. Like I felt after the November 6th midterm elections, when he was barking at Jim Acosta, it demonstrated that he is unhinged and he's becoming more unhinged. He's unraveling. And I think that this story kind of speaks to that because this is someone who is not bright. This is someone who has the temperament of a toddler. So he just randomly decided to approach this Democrat and confront him. Why aren't you speaking out more on the issue of abortion? That's so weird. Um, and I don't think that abortion was the reason why Donald Trump confronted him. I think he's an irrational human being and was just maybe feeling as if he had a hair up his ass and wanted to take his anger out on someone and he saw a Democrat and he decided to pounce, as the article points out. Very bizarre, very weird, and this isn't just a problem because it's un unbecoming of the president. It's unbecoming of a rational adult. 
It's weird. Who does shit like this? Grown-ups who are not well-adjusted. People who are grown up physically, but mentally, they haven't matured yet. Donald Trump clearly hasn't matured. So I don't really have much to say. I just wanted to shine a light on this story because it's weird, man. It's it's so weird. Donald Trump is such a weird figure. He's, he's such a man baby because this is the behavior you'd expect from adolescents who are going through puberty and have these mood swings. But you see this 70 plus year old man just confronting people in a hostile way when he's in a position of extreme power, when all eyes are watching him, doesn't even think of the optics, doesn't care, um, or maybe he thought of the optics and thought that it would help cultivate favor among his evangelical base. I don't know. All I know is that this is really weird behavior, um, and it just proves my point that I think he's becoming more and more unhinged. With all of the bad news we've been bombarded with when it comes to climate change lately, you'd think that just from a psychological standpoint, people would begin to start getting desensitized. Because I feel like your brain just has a way of shutting out bad news in order to protect you, but I really don't get the sense that people are becoming desensitized. If anything, I think the opposite is true. I think that people are becoming increasingly worried about climate change. And this is due to the onslaught of bad news we keep receiving. I mean, this isn't new. We've been getting a lot of bad stories with regard to climate change where scientists are warning us that it's worse than they anticipated and it's happening faster than they expected. But I think that the IPCC's report published last year really put everything into perspective for us because in giving us this really short timeline that we have 12 years to act to stop catastrophic levels of climate change i think that that just kind of it did something it flipped a switch and really gave us that perspective that we were previously lacking because so long as you have this amorphous idea that climate change is coming but you don't necessarily know when and how long you have to act you know you you can kind of put it off in your mind but in giving us that 12 year timeline it really does put things into perspective so with that being said in addition to all of the bad news we've received we got Probably one of the more terrifying stories. I mean, there's been a ton of different stories that have really shook me to my core recently. You know, the dying of plankton, which spells disaster for the habitability of our planet and species on this planet. But we have a new story that doesn't bode well for the survival of our ecosystem. And scientists, I think they're just, they're to the point where they've given us all the warnings that we need now is just a matter of acting but this new news that we're receiving it is chilling to say the absolute least so as damian carrington of the guardian reports the world's insects are hurtling down the path to extinction threatening a catastrophic collapse of nature's ecosystems, according to the first global scientific review. More than 40% of insect species are declining, and a third are endangered, the analysis found. The rate of extinction is eight times faster than that of mammals, birds, and reptiles. The total mass of insects is falling by a precipitous 
2.5% a year, according to the best data available, suggesting they could vanish within a century. The planet is at the start of a sixth mass extinction in its history, with huge losses already reported in larger animals that are easier to study. But insects are by far the most varied and abundant animals outweighing humanity by 17 times. They are essential for the proper functioning of all ecosystems, the researchers say, as food for other creatures, pollinators, and recyclers of nutrients. Insect population collapses have recently been reported in Germany and Puerto Rico, but the review strongly indicates the crisis is global. The researchers set out their conclusions in unusually forceful terms for a peer-reviewed scientific paper. The insect trends confirm that the sixth major extinction event is profoundly impacting life forms on our planet. Unless we change our ways of producing food, insects as a whole will go down the path of extinction in a few decades, they write. The repercussions this will have for the planet's ecosystems are catastrophic to say the least. The analysis published in the journal Biological Conservation says intensive agriculture is the main driver of the declines, particularly the heavy use of pesticides, urbanization, and climate change are also significant factors. So I think that the story pretty much speaks for itself. My commentary is really not needed here. There's nothing that I can add to supplement this discussion. Like you, I'm terrified. Millennials and Gen Z, they're the first generation that has to worry not necessarily whether or not they'll be able to retire because that's certainly a concern, but they're going to have to worry about whether or not they'll be able to survive what will most likely be catastrophic levels of climate change and the decimation of species because of human beings. It is horrifying. And we just simply don't have the political will and the urgency needed to act. We need to not just focus on climate change mitigation, but adaptation as well, because climate change is already here. So we need to learn how to adapt if we want to survive, but we also need to mitigate further damage. And I mean, look at the response to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal. There's just no urgency. There's attacks from the mainstream media, primarily Fox News, of course, who are more concerned about paying for it than anything else. Well, you know, we can address climate change, but make sure you do it in a way that doesn't impact the deficit negatively. Well, look, just taking a step back and looking at this from the standpoint of an alien. Pretend as if you're not from Earth and you live on the moon and you're looking at just that blue marble. These concepts that we've made up, such as the deficit and money, these are all foreign to that alien. You have no idea. All you see, you know, as an outsider, looking at the Earth as a whole, is that because of political limitations that we've imposed on ourselves, because of our inherently tribalistic nature as a species, we're choosing to not act as we witness our planet dying. Now, all these insects and endangered species that are dying off, they have an excuse. They don't know. But for human beings, we know that this is coming and that extinction may be inevitable, even if we do everything we can, but we're still not doing what we need to be doing. We came together before to stop the hole 
in our ozone layer, and we solved that crisis. But now, since this is a problem that is incredibly complex and esoteric, we just, we're choosing not to do it. And it's sad. It really is sad. The United States is just one country in, you know, an international global sphere of politics, but the level of influence that they have it can't be understated. They really could make a difference. We could make a difference, but we're choosing not to. Our president is literally still trying to disprove climate change by pointing to the existence of snow. You're not disproving it. You're proving it further because extreme weather patterns are going to become more frequent. Scientists warned us of that, and we're seeing that now. But these politicians, they're old. Donald Trump is in his 70s. He doesn't have to care about climate change. He doesn't have to worry about future generations because he's not going to be around to see Florida underwater. He's not going to be around to see what will happen when wars will be waged literally over water shortages in the Middle East and North Africa. He is not going to see that, and a lot of our lawmakers aren't going to see that. And this includes Democrats as well. They may not necessarily deny climate change, which is a good thing. It's a step in the right direction. But if you don't have the urgency to act and the desire to act, then you're part of the problem. I'm sorry. So I really, I don't know what to say anymore. We just keep getting hit with more bad news after bad news, and it may be too late. But we did this to ourselves. We all could be doing more, and we're just, we're not. Net neutrality has been one of those issues that is just so complex and convoluted that if you're just a normal consumer of news, it's difficult to follow this issue because there's so much propaganda and misinformation that you could easily be misled here. But Republicans are making it even worse because while they wage a war against the internet, they're pretending as if they're on your side, on the side of the people who actually care about net neutrality. So they've done things to suggest that they're not actually the enemies of the internet, they're on your side. For example, Marsha Blackburn, right after net neutrality was re repealed, she actually created a bill that was a fake net neutrality bill that allowed for paid prioritization. In other words, she claimed to support net neutrality while supporting fast lanes, something that inherently violates the principle of net neutrality. So the average consumer of news is already confused enough, but they're making it worse. And now what they're doing is they are bombarding us with fake net neutrality bills that are net neutrality in name only, but in actuality are harmful to the cause of net neutrality. Now, as Del Cameron of Gizmodo reports, GOP lawmakers are preparing to introduce yet another piece of legislation that purports to restore net neutrality just a year after Republicans moved to dismantle it. How kind. A supporter of the Federal Communications Commission's repeal of net neutrality, Representative Bob Latta, a Republican of Ohio is introducing H.R. 1001, a bill described as amending Title I of the Communications Act to provide for internet openness and for other purposes. While the text of the bill is not currently available online, we can be sure that what it will do is leave gaping loopholes through which ISPs can climb to screw over their subscribers. During a Communications and Technology Subcommittee 
hearing on Thursday, GOP representatives Kathy McMorris-Rogers and Greg Walden announced they were introducing similar bills. Based on the title and statements during the hearing, Latta's bill will seek to ensure that broadband access is permanently classified as an information service under the Communications Act, the purpose being to prevent the FCC from ever regaining the authority to hold ISPs to account. Notably, Latta tried this trick several years ago. Representative Marsha Blackburn, another fierce opponent of net neutrality, also tried to pull a similar stunt last year and failed. Despite what the new House minority claims, none of these bills would safeguard net neutrality or internet users' rights, said Free Press General Counsel Matt Wood. They would instead undermine the FCC's ability to protect people online by removing broadband and wireless companies from nearly all agency oversight. So think about how disingenuous these lawmakers are being. They know that net neutrality is an incredibly popular issue, so they can't just come out and say, we're against net neutrality and we want to dismantle net neutrality and the rules that made the internet so great. So what they have to do is pretend to be an ally. They have to pretend as if they're on your side and craft these bills that appear to be in support of net neutrality, but only ostensibly so. But when you read the text of these bills and follow them and what they've been doing throughout their careers to break down net neutrality, it's very clear that they don't support net neutrality. And it's so disgusting and disingenuous because the average person who cares about net neutrality might easily be duped by this because this issue is already complex and convoluted, as I stated. So by saying, no, we're just taking legislative action to secure net neutrality, they're doing specifically what internet service providers want. They've been spending millions of dollars lobbying, not just to get rid of net neutrality, but to make sure that there's this legislative fix to net neutrality, because they know that that's going to be the easiest way to strip away power from the FCC, who is the regulatory body that's best equipped to regulate the internet to enforce net neutrality. But they know that if they can push for a legislative fix, they can get their little puppets to do their bidding and to get them to reclassify broadband as an information service in order to make it so that way the FCC could never regulate. So that way we can never have Title II again, regardless if you know the lawsuit goes their way or not. It's incredibly disingenuous, and they really should be ashamed of themselves. People like Marshall Blackburn, who care or claim to care specifically about net neutrality, they're bankrolled by the industry, Comcast, AT&T. So these are not your friends, but they're trying to pretend to be your friends, when in actuality, they're fake friends who are working against you. Now, thankfully, there are people in Congress who are looking out for us. This is what Ro Khanna tweeted out in response to this. Republicans keep introducing bills to, quote, restore net neutrality, but in reality, they would only reclassify broadband access as an information service. Instead of protecting the open internet, these bills would actually prevent FCC oversight of internet service providers. And that's exactly true, and it's incredibly important. People need to know about this because it's, look, it's really difficult to see that what they're doing is actually not in your best interest because people have nefarious agendas in Congress. They take money from the industries that want to destroy the internet and internet openness, and then they create these fake net neutrality bills to make us seem as if you know, um, they're on your side when they're not on your side. People who I've talked to about this issue, they've been misled by fake friends who claim to support net neutrality, but who don't actually support net neutrality, or who claim to support net neutrality like some Democrats, but don't actually take action to protect net neutrality.
So it's just, it's incredibly frustrating to see this, but thankfully there are people in Congress who are speaking out against what they're doing and trying to, you know, shine a light on their shenanigans. And, you know, I hope people are going to be savvy and realize that anyone who is claiming to support net neutrality, but is taking money from internet service providers, they're not your friend and anything that they claim otherwise is going to be just bullshit. So we have to be really cognizant of the fact that they're going to try to mislead us because they know how popular net neutrality is. And we've got to make sure we educate people because this cannot stand. In a world of politics dominated by the strange, the deranged, and outright insane, We'll now take a moment to shine a light on the craziest of what politics has to offer. This is your weekly Dose of Stupidity. So as a whole, are you saying that the LGBTQ community expresses evil and hatred? Absolutely. The, the, they're the most evil-spreading and hate-filled group in this country. They're the closest thing to political terrorism in America. No question about it. They're, they're just really a blight on this country and a blight in our communities uh, as a socialist organization. Socialist, 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 so socialist organization. You have a adorable daughter and a precious son. Mm -hmm. What would happen if a few years from now, when they're teens, young adults, they came to you and said that they think that they might be gay or lesbian? Well, I will address my daughter first, as I would uh, take her for a pedicure, uh, take her to get her nails done, and see if she could swim. If it was my son, I would probably take him hunting, I would take him fishing, and I'd see if he could swim. What do you mean you would see if they could swim? I just want to make sure they could swim. What do you mean by that? Just that—that's it. I mean, I'd take him out to do activities. Okay. Gay, 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 g